Welcome to the bullpen session. This is Patrick Lillis, and thank you for listening. Glad you're here. Hope you're okay. Hope everybody's doing well. Summer starting officially. Hope you're getting a chance to get outside, enjoy yourself, wearing a mask, taking care of yourself, social distancing, and uh, doing all you can to, you know, stay healthy. Excited to share the conversation this week with Celeste Legrataria. She's the production manager for Manhattan Theater Club. I got to meet Celeste because she's also an alumni of Center College. And last, feels like forever ago, spring, we, maybe it was spring, yeah, this, we met, uh, had a couple of schools come up, we were going to do a project, and Celeste set up uh, came and talked to the schools before we saw the production of MTC's production of Inc. And, and then afterwards set it up so that we could talk uh, cast afterwards and see the show to so go backstage. And it was, it was great. And getting to hear her talk, I just thought, Oh, it's fascinating. I want, I want to make sure that you get to hear her talk um, about what the job of being a production manager is because it's vitally important. And it's the person who coordinates basically everything backstage, meaning coordinates pre-production, coordinates budgets and hiring and everything. And she talks about it better than I will. And also she is uh, on a bunch of committees outside of Manhattan Theater Club nationally, just talking about how we're going to bring theater back and thinking about all the things that we need to think about. You know, how are we going to do dressing? How are we going to you know, do backstage crew. How are we going to be able to get everybody to feel safe to come back? And I'm, I'm really glad she's thinking about it. I'm glad she's one of the people on that committee and in that national conversation as well as local conversation. One of the reasons I also wanted to talk to her is because, you know, I think I, the farm and uh, a lot of early career artists. You know, we work with indie theater companies, smaller theater companies, and I really thought it would be good for people to hear because I think when you're running a, a, a smaller theater company, you you are building the skills and you're doing things that are very much like production manager at the Broadway level, the you know Manhattan Theater Club off-Broadway level, uh, but also Broadway. And it's just good to hear how she, how she came to that job and and what she's doing. And I think it's I think there's a lot of people in our community who are doing that job and self-producing, and and it's a job that comes with being the producer at a certain level or being the artistic director. You also take on all the budgeting and all the hiring and all the coordinating. And it was great to hear her talk. And at the very beginning, you'll hear her talk about the fact that she's in a lot of conversations about not fact that we don't know what's next and everybody's trying to figure it out and and I've really been thinking about where I am at this moment and where people are because it seems like you know there's seems like we we know we're not officially going to be in a room anytime soon and we're not don't know when we're going to be back in a traditional or past way of doing theater and you know I'm not sure what the most satisfying thing is to do but what I was thinking is that it's there's never been one path you know we talked about that comes up a lot in these conversations not one path to build a career well there's also not one path to create and really been thinking about the fact that it's okay not to know nobody knows what's next we don't know what it's going to look like we don't know you know what the phases are going to feel like and what's going to be a satisfying way to create and share the work and so for me, I just wanted to say I'm feeling better about knowing that everybody's working on it. Nobody knows. It's okay not to know. And, you know, that doesn't, not knowing doesn't have to paralyze you. You know, it's uh, not knowing is not a barrier. It's a little freeing, like I say about directing, you know, I don't know, let's figure it out. And I think we don't know. Nothing is certain. And so anything is possible. You know, it's just thinking about that, and, and anything is possible, uh, especially if you have people like Celeste on your team. So uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation. It's a, It was really great to talk to her. She's uh, incredibly positive and really smart and great at her job. Apparently, that will become very clear. And uh, with that, play ball. to government officials who are listening to the medical community. 
um, and we're taking our leave from there so that we're coming back to work both safely uh, for our audience as well as for our staff, actors, people on stage, the whole team, crew. And we're waiting to see what exactly the, the Broadway community does because, you know, like the Broadway League comes out and says, here's what we're doing as a group, right? We're a part of that group, although Manhattan Theater Club's a, a nonprofit organization, so we're not part of the commercial Broadway world, but we are in the Broadway League, uh, you know, team, if you will. Um, so we're planning as much as you can when you're in the middle of a global pandemic and your job is to gather people together, right? We unfortunately, immediately, as soon as Broadway shut down, we had our last performance that evening of the off-Broadway show that we were running in stage one. That show was called The Perplexed. And we, shortly after that, stopped the load-in of How I Learned to Drive, which is the show that's going on to our Broadway stage at The Freedman. So, and then we we held for a second. Um, eventually, it came down that we needed to cancel Poor Yellow Rednecks, which was going in next at stage one, and The Best We Could, which was going in next at stage two. Um, and that broke my heart because I was working very closely on both of those shows, very exciting, excited about both of those shows. Um, and the, you know, it's just the hope of when can we get them back into our seasons, right? Yeah. And um, is, there a, is there a day-to-day work of like of planning or thinking artistically, like what action can the organization do while we're in a holding pattern? Yeah, I, I'm on, uh, let's see, three different task forces uh, outside of the organization. And then I'm on um, two different task forces inside the organization. So that's outside the organization, the theater community as a whole, right? All the production managers from the country, uh, across the country, uh, and then all the production managers of Lort Theaters specifically, and then the off-Broadway community in New York City. Those are my three external, right? And then, uh, and we're having Zoom meetings and discussions and sharing resources over email and and everybody agrees that we don't know what we're fucking doing, right? Like, how can you plan for something you don't know what's coming? Um, Internally, right, we're talking about on the facility side of things for our staff, we're talking about our our approach on stage, backstage, front of house, in the theaters, right? And from a programming standpoint, there are scenarios, right? We go back, Broadway doesn't go back until June 8th. Okay, well, then Charlotte St. Martin of the Broadway League announces that nobody's going back probably until January. Great. Thanks, Charlotte. Uh, <laughs> the whole New York City theater you know, community goes, oh, okay, we're saying that now, right? It doesn't mean that we haven't been talking about scenarios, right? There are theaters across the season across the country who have canceled the entire 2021 season already, right? We're absolutely holding out to not do that. That's a major, huge, terrible step to have to take. But, you know, the Guthrie, they announced that 2021 is gone until... The Guthrie said until March. Yeah, March, and they're doing a short season. um, Denver Center just pronounced you know, 2021 gone. Um, so, so we're running scenarios. We're running scenarios from a feasibility safety standpoint and then from a programming standpoint, right? Then you get into artist availability. Right now, everybody's available, right? (laughs) But when do they, you know, how do they, how long do they stay available? When do they come back? What, you know, are, are the artists going to be comfortable going on stage how do we is it reasonable or possible to ask people to be backstage and dressers and actors you know in each other's literally in each other's faces and how do you socially distance does it even is it even feasible to socially distance an audience and what does that do to your house capacity that's been a huge discussion across the country and, you know, that's that's sort of where the Broadway League went, was it doesn't make sense for us to come back until everybody can be back. 
and that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, let's be clear. Sucks. There, you know, there's this, I work for an organization that's a large organization. I, you know, there's a part of me that misses the scrappy theater day of, you know, where we could say, fine, we're going to do theater in a parking lot. See you outside, right? Those theaters right now, those companies are the companies that are going to pick up and go faster than anybody else. And I'm jealous because those people are going to return to theater, you know, faster. But I, I think this will happen. This will happen before the podcast drops. But a friend of mine, Elizabeth Wilder, she's down at University of the South, Swanee, and mm-hmm. she's doing it. Th- she's a playwright who was supposed to have a regional production up in Rochester, where I am. And uh, she's doing the porch plays where she's going to do different plays on different porches and bring the audience to the next house and the next house. And it, I was like, oh, that's so great. I, when I get back to my neighbor in Brooklyn, maybe I'll do that because there are porches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Somebody, we were talking the other day, I was talking to somebody else at work the other day and he was like, pageant wagons, anyone? You know, it was like, look, theater has happened before during plagues, literal plagues. You know, there are ways to do this without, we can only do it the way that we've done it before or we can't do it at all. But not every organization is built to be able to respond that quickly, that nimbly, that, you know, the thing that I've been really focused on a lot in my work, our equity, diversity, and inclusion committee has actually been ramping up a lot of work, um, which is especially pertinent right this second, yes. uh, considering everything that ha- that is happening on a national level with respect to protests. Um, but we've really been uh, from for the EDI side of things, really been talking about how do we take this moment and really make sure that we're not ignoring and disregarding and undervaluing a whole community of people if we're rebuilding systems anyway, right? Like yeah. for us, and I've, I say this every now and then in various meetings, right? We start talking about how we change the, the access for the audience and the audience flow. And then I say, uh, how does that work for somebody in a wheelchair, right? If we're going to build the system back differently, then now is the time that we acknowledge that there is an entire community of people. There are entire communities, different communities that we have left out and made the afterthought. And now we have the opportunity to fix that. And basically, if we rebuild the system and we leave out groups of people again, we fucked it up. <laughs> you know, like, we, I mean, that's just knowledgeably irresponsible of us. And that's true. Like, that's just simply true from the pandemic. You know, just yeah. the pa- pause the pandemic gave is like when you said the wheelchair access, I think like, right, as we start to think about it, we have to be thinking about inclusivity about everyone and and how are we being inclusive in what stories we tell how we yes. tell them, who's invited into the process of telling them, sharing, listening, and, and experiencing them, and all of it. And it's, that is the opportunity we were given. And then, and then it's June 1st while we're talking. It's become crystal clear uh, that other work has to be done. Yeah. You know? Yeah, the, um, on the, Yeah. <laughs> So I'm gonna I'm gonna back up a little bit yes. because I think one of the reasons it was funny I I said this in my email to you now is I had drafted an email to you that I didn't send because I was going out of town to direct a play that and uh, and I thought oh I'll send it afterwards but I've written it and it was like oh and we won't meet any day that's good for you I know Wednesday's probably hard because of matinee and stuff and you know now we get to talk because there's no production so you have a little more time. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that's exactly true, but uh, it's true. But it's good. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing tangible for the production managing. And there's what I like to say is I'm just as busy as I've been. I just don't have any deadlines. Um, <laughs> that's very true. And yeah. but I was curious. I was curious what got you into production managing, and my and I'm going to say my joke is what made you think? Oh, let me take the job that's responsible for everything 
and recognized for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I basically chose production management because I didn't want to decide, right, on one thing. Um, I I like to say I just couldn't make up my mind, so I went for all of it. (laughs) Essentially, I started when I, uh, so I graduated from Center College, double major in English and theater, and I did some, you know, post-college whatever stuff. And then eventually um, I got a a directing internship at Kentucky Shakespeare Festival in Louisville. And I stayed with uh, the Shakespeare Festival for six years and just sort of moved my, I got onto the full-time staff at a very entry-level position and then moved my way through that company. Um, and I had my hand in every pot at some point. I production managed the summer seasons, you know, a couple of seasons near the end. I wrote grants. I ran the education department. I. What was the I, first job that went from assistant directing, because I know what that is and I know how you get that job, you uh-huh. know, to full-time, to stick part of the staff? How did you enter the, that? I, I jumped into the education department, basically as a member of the education team, Um, The Shakespeare Festival tours around the state of Kentucky. There are 120 counties in the state of Kentucky, and the Kentucky Shakespeare Festival tours to every single one of them and brings Shakespeare into classrooms. And for some of the kids, you know, in Floyd County, Kentucky, that's like that fifth grader is having their first and possibly only Shakespeare experience unless they, you know, um, get access to a larger a larger universe. So uh, I was I was basically one of the person one of the people who was booking those shows for the the um, artistic teams who were going out. I did that I think for two years, and then I and I moved my way up in the education department, uh, and eventually took over the education department, and then was did that for a couple of years, um, and then ultimately we hired an education director, and I. Um, had moved at that point into fundraising. I was grant writing. We were doing, I was doing the marketing. I sort of ran the office, right? Um, And did board liaison stuff. And by the end, by the time I left uh, the Shakespeare Festival, I was the associate producing director. It's a very small company, was at the time a very small company. So I was a big fish in a small pond, right? But over the, I like to say that that was the longest internship of my life. Because I got, I got to try my hand at everything, right? I got to write grants. I learned how much, uh, I learned that writing grants takes a special kind of patience, right? Because you work really hard on something for two, three, six months, you know, whatever. And then you put it in the mail and you wait a year, right? That's a level of patience that I was not <laughs> on, I wasn't aware of, um, you know, <laughs> And over the course of that, um, the time with that company, the thing that I came to was that production managing the summer season was my favorite. It was directly working with the theater, it was putting the show on, right? It was all of the collaboration with the artistic team. It was working with crews. Basically, I get to work with everybody but the actors, which I'm fine with sometimes. Um, <laughs> I have an immense amount of respect for stage managers and company managers. Uh, I was not good at stage managing. It made me super tense. So, so I, I got to a certain level with the Shakespeare Festival and determined that, okay, this is what I wanted to do, production manage. And then I, I realized that my technical theater knowledge was really lacking. I didn't know anything about moving lights. I didn't know anything about automated scenery, right? There were, there were gaps, not necessarily in a management background, but gaps in the technical theater side of things. And, and that's an area that you really need to be able to, to talk about and engage with. Um, so I went to grad school. I'll ask about that in a second, but in the management part of it, did you learn that hands-on? I mean, I, I was, like I said, it was a big fish in a small pond, right? So yeah, there was a lot of uh, carry this, <laughs> right? Um, right? We had staff and teams, you know, but I'm just even thinking, shows, but, but I'm thinking about the budgeting and all the stuff, like if that's, there's the technical theater equipment, but then there's all the scheduling that 
Yeah, so I was involved in the scheduling uh, and oversaw a lot of that scheduling. My art, our artistic, our producing director, producing artistic director, uh, Kurt was, he, he, it was his show <laughs> a lot of the time, right? So I worked really, really closely with him and we, we put the plan together and then we ran a summer season and then. And, um, and then when you said I went to grad school, is it because you knew you wanted to continue on doing this job and you needed more knowledge? Yeah, essentially, I, I decided that I wanted to learn specifically the technical theater side of things from a production management perspective. So I uh, applied to the production technology and management MFA program at Carnegie Mellon, and uh, I got in, and that's where I went, and that's my MFA. It's pretty great. I think I... That was expensive. What, well, um, what was it? It, it was, uh, it, and it's funny, I met, um, I went around and sort of was talking to uh, graduates of Carnegie Mellon uh, ahead of time, and I, <laughs> I met with Mark Masterson, right, who used to run Actors Theatre, um, and we sat down and he said, why would you spend the money to go to grad school, right, when you have been out there working? Uh, and I said, because uh, I don't necessarily think that with, I mean, a lot of where you go for grad school, depending on the echelon, right, of that establishment gets you connections. And I didn't know exactly how to get to the next set of connections to the next level to learn those things that I wanted to learn as quickly as possible. When you talk to, here's my thing, when you talk to Mark, who is the former artistic director of actor's theater yeah. did he say why would you do this his next sentence wasn't because i'll hire you yeah no it wasn't shocking <laughs> uh it wasn't and at that point i wasn't seasoned enough uh, you know to to step into that role at atl um <laughs> although i i would have loved to have that happen later uh you know we won't have we don't have to pitch right now right <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh but no, I would say, well, it's interesting because it is a job when I saw that you had gone to grad school and I'm glad you mentioned the cost of it and, and, and the why, because it is like a job that I picture you people learning hands-on a lot through production and, and, and almost terrifyingly like a job that is built for the Peter principle of like, you're really good at something and you've moved into another position and I don't, there's so many things you wouldn't know about you know, because you have to know everything. Yeah, uh, it's, it's almost, uh, I mean, I always have said that I like to re I like to hire people who are smarter than me, right? So I don't want to be competing with my technical director about what he knows about rigging versus what I know about rigging. I want to hire somebody who is way more knowledgeable than I am to make those, you know, I, I want to have trust in that person and have proof of that person's ability, right? Um, and be able to see when it's, uh, you know, in question. But yeah, I, I needed to be able to have a conversation with a designer, right? About what the terms, what the parameters were and how that played out for their design. Uh, and not, you can't make up moving light language. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like there's, there's stuff that you need to know that's um, specific to, and I didn't actually know how to get from Louisville, Kentucky, and not be at Actors Theater to the next place, right? Um, when I went to uh, CMU, I, I left CMU, I got my MFA, I spent a summer at Williamstown Theater Festival. So Carnegie Mellon got me connections to get into Williamstown. Williamstown got me connections, and Carnegie Mellon got me connections to get into Center Theater Group in LA where I was the production manager at the Kirk Douglas for eight years. And then I moved over to the Mark Taper Forum as the associate for a couple of years. And then, you know, and then. Uh, I'm, I'm back up when you say got me connections, what does that look like? And is that, I mean, it, I sort of want to break it down in a real simple way. Like somebody you were working with, you connected with and they recommended you. Yes, and then you also get the number of people who recognize that name and know somebody else, so they call behind your, not behind your back, but they do their research, you know, and they call people, you know, and say, what about this person, and what do you know about them, and it becomes, I mean, as 
as is so true with a lot of the way our uh, society period is built, you know, who you know, it doesn't mean that you don't have the expertise, right? It means that your name gets pushed higher on the list because in an ocean of people who are applying for a theater job, right? Um, if you have a certain credential on your resume, then that, that bumps you higher to, the, you know, higher to the top. And then you have to get in there and, you know, prove yourself and not screw it up. And, you know, gladly, I think I did that. Um, Still doing it. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's connection to connection to connection. And is it people, at, is it people suggesting things to you or are you actively asking? Uh, in terms of the things that I'm, I'm sort of thinking about, I'm thinking about like when you went from, from Williamstown to the other side of the country, mm -hmm. did somebody suggest that they say, Hey, I know somebody you should reach out to them. Or did you say, I saw a job opportunity. Can you recommend me? Uh, that summer um, I was looking around and the job at the Kirk Douglas posted center theater group posted the job. Uh, and I looked at that and, you know, Mark Taper Forum was the theater that was listed in the front cover of so many plays that I read in college, first performed at the Mark Taper Forum. And I had this idea, I was just like, if I can get to the taper, you know, like we have that dream, whatever. It ended up being the, the production manager of the Kirk Douglas was like my home. I was... Uh, at the very beginning of that theater opening, I was the, the production manager starting the second season. And I consider that my, you know, theatrical home because I, that those were my people. That was my house. I have a very strong emotional connection to that place. But when I, when they posted that job and I was considering whether or not I should apply and how that might go, I was also, I had also been offered uh, Williamstown Theater Festival's production manager position for the following season. So I was the associate production manager at that point at Williamstown. And they said, will you come back as production manager for the following season? So I essentially had an East Coast chance and a West Coast chance, right? I got the, I, I interviewed at CTG and I got the offer. So I was trying to decide and I called a designer that I had a lot of respect for who, you know, a seasoned designer. And I said, if you had to pick uh, where you think I should go, where should I go? And he said, I think the West Coast is doing um, some more interesting work than the East Coast a lot of the time. And I think there's a lot of future and potential out there. I think you should go westward. And, uh, and you know, obviously, the, um, the Douglas was a full-time year-round position. Williamstown is a nine-month position. And then you don't have a job again unless they bring you back. And, you know, so there was definitely a permanence to uh, Center Theater Group. And at that point, my... Um, eventually to be husband was interested in going to the west coast for his uh track you know profession track so um so that was the choice but yeah i i am i am a big fan of calling calling in a lifeline right <laughs> i like to call people and say what do you think you have you've worked here what's your perspective on that place and my research and it, well, it's funny, I've heard that throughout, just even when you said hiring the TD, I like to have faith in their ability and proof. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I think what it, the, what's the first part of it? Something, trust and verify. <laughs> yeah, uh, one, of the, one of the things with our, um, the access to having even the opportunity is the tricky part right now with making sure that we're getting uh, a diverse enough community in in the theater world, right? Because, you know, if nobody has the opportunity to get an internship at a theater with a fancy name or whatever, and we only ever hire the people who have the credits from the places we've all worked before, right? Then we're keeping it very insular. Um, so we have an internship program at MTC, and when we look at the, the um, applicants for the production production management intern. Um, we have an agreement internally that we like to look not necessarily at the people who already have been at X, Y, and Z places, right? We're actually looking for the people who haven't been at those places yet, who haven't had an opportunity to get there because 
as the, you know, Louisville girl who was coming out of Kentucky Shakespeare, if somebody hadn't said, yeah, we'll give you a chance, right? You know, I, it's hard to break the mold and to, and that's, you know, I don't even have any, um, I don't have any obstacles in terms of my, my ethnicity, my race, right? I have obstacles uh, in terms of my gender, right? Which I'm constantly, <laughs> that's a lifelong thing, right? But yeah, I, I, I have a personal commitment to trying to make sure that we're not just always just hiring ourselves again, right? Yeah. That we're, really, that we're really giving new people and new voices an opportunity to come into the theater community. And so it's not just so white and male and, <laughs> right? Uh, and No, it's, it's true. One of my, you know, it's funny during this time, I, I, I was saying before we started the interview that, it, you know, I'm doing, was looking at doing the work of equity, diversity, inclusion, growth, awareness. But one of the missions of the farm is to create pathways and connections for artists who don't necessarily have the pedigree for success, you know, yeah. and, and early career and trying to get them to the next step and knowing that sometimes the next step is like, how do you get to the pipeline of Carnegie Mellon? How mm -hmm. do you get to somewhere like that? Or how do you create opportunities so they build a reputation on their own? Yeah. You know, and I mean, if you, if you, if you track it, you know, I graduated from college. I, you know, didn't do much really with my life for a couple of years. Then I worked for the Shakespeare Festival for six, which means I was 29 when I went to grad school, right? Which if you're going into a PhD program on a, you know, MBA level or, you know, whatever, that didn't make sense. But if you're going on a business, you know, track, a lot of those people are older when they go back to grad school. A lot of people are but in theater, there's this thing where kids roll out of undergrad and then they drop right into grad school, right? And I'm very glad that I took the time to actually go out and work and figure out exactly what I wanted to learn and exactly where I thought my my deficiencies were, you know, um, from a from a theatrical standpoint. Because I watched a lot of my classmates sort of say, uh, yeah, I mean, stage management sounds good. And I was like, yeah, this is a lot of money to spend on a maybe I'll do this. Like, get out and go work and learn some stuff. And, you know, one of the greatest internships I ever had in my life was when I decided I don't want to do this anymore. This thing that I thought I wanted to do, terrible. No, right? That's, that's a really valuable internship because then you're not wasting your time, your personal time, learning that thing or doing that thing anymore. Like but not everybody can do that, right? Like not everybody can afford an internship that doesn't really pay. Not everybody can afford, I mean, the there is a lot of inequity but in the other, how, we, how we move through the ranks. So. I agree. And, but the other thing that's really valuable is when you, is I don't think, I think we think 29 is in theater took a long time. I think whether you're going for production management, stage management, design, acting, directing, it's like, you should know what you want to spend the money and, and you're investing years of your life. Yep. What do you want to, you know, and I think there's a lot of value in doing everything early, like you, like your path, doing everything early on. So you can, you know, you learn that you want to continue to do everything. So yeah. that's good. But other people get to learn, I don't want to do this and, you know, find out more because we don't know everything. You know, we haven't experienced everything in four years of undergrad. We just right. haven't. And, I, you know, I don't think I knew what production management was when I came out of undergrad. That's something, especially that's an area that you especially have to take some time with. All right, I'm hitting you right now. What's production management? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you define that job? Uh, I like to, when I had to figure out how to describe it to my family, to my grandmother, um, I described Thanksgiving dinner. Right. And my job is to make sure that dinner hits the table on time, um, under budget and uh, of quality. Right. So hot, ready on <laughs> hot, ready on time, uh, you know, and it tastes good. And the one I have the least control about is the taste. Right. Uh, because there's a whole artistic universe that I'm not making decisions about. But the execution of those designs, you know, 
by the technical staff. That's actually, that's absolutely my area, right? So I'm figuring, I'm managing the schedules, right, to get the, the scenery designed, built, installed, and maintained during the run. And that same thing for lighting, sound, video, costumes, right? I'm managing the budget to make sure that we can all do that within the within the bounds of the uh, decree of the company, right? Um, and also figuring out, helping the artists to figure out when they need to, when they need to move money around to actually uh, serve their shifting priorities, right? Um, a lot of times they walk into a show and they think this is the most important thing. And over the course of the discovery process, because theater is an organic, right? Even clunky theater, even clunky theater is an organic process, right? Priorities shift and decisions are, you know, things are discovered and and so you move money around sometimes. Um, and then I'm, uh, I'm overseeing the staffing, uh, the hiring of the technical staff, the management of the designer relations a lot of times. And then ultimately, you know, tech and the show get in and on stage and... And the show opens, and I walk away. <laughs> dinner is, dinner is I'm, served. <laughs> I'm on the next one. You know, it's there's a there's a point uh, once we hit tech where I'm handing off to the stage manager a certain a whole chunk of the show, um, and it's not like here it's yours, <laughs> right? Um, but I'm working, you know, over here to manage all of the technical process and and budget and scheduling and staffing and the stage managers working over here to put the show together with all of those elements and everybody's managing director expectations and you know personalities and I just really like people uh, and I like talking which you've probably figured out by now I like that part <laughs> and you know it's like I didn't want to be a sculptor and sit in a room by myself and make art right I do consider production management highly artistic. Uh, it's not the same as, a, you know, being a designer. It's not that style of creativity, but it takes a lot of creativity to manage artists. <laughs> yeah, it, well, lot. it does, but it's, it's funny because I think, I think producing is an art because you're putting the right people, you're picking the project, you're putting the people together, you're doing it. And I, and because, I had the opportunity to listen to you talk when the people from Center College were in town. And I thought, yeah, I think production managing is an art. I actually was listening to you talk about what you do. And, and I thought there's a lot of producers of indie theater, like you were saying, the very nimble people who can do something in a parking lot and, and smaller theaters who I think are unconsciously, they might be producers, they might be artistic directors, but I think what they're doing is on a high level would be production management, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's it's definitely a position that comes into play after you reach a certain size of company, right? The, the, the smaller, scrappier companies where everybody's wearing seven hats rarely has a designated production manager. One of those hats is production management. One of those hats is marketing. One of those, you know... And that's what I was doing when I was at Shakespeare, the Kentucky Shakespeare. I wasn't just the production manager. I was the person who was also, you know, putting together the press release and making sure that the board members knew when to come to the special event. Right. It was, that was a many hats position. Um, and ultimately I decided I really like the fit of this hat. I would like to put down all of the rest of them. And now uh, production management it, it stays interesting because every show is different. Every team of artists is different. Every show has its own set of challenges. I was having a conversation the other day with our uh, shop, um, costume shop supervisor and prop supervisor about how oh, very often the thing that you think is gonna be the biggest problem, the biggest challenge in the show ends up being nothing. And this thing that you had not seen coming knocks you on your ass and that's where you spend all your time fixing the issue and those are the moments which we talk about the most right and where we feel sort of the proudest that we figured it out just because um, when it was funny when you were talking about changing the priority of money and stuff i thought i don't think of it because i don't have your job as the director 
I don't think of it as changing the priority of money, but what I realize is it's, it's where are the resources going to go? Yeah. You know, and, yeah. Whether it's actual dollar amount from this, uh, for this piece of scenery or for that costume is now a bigger deal or whether it's, you only have this many people on the crew and this many hours in the week and you can only spend this much overtime. Right. So how are you shifting that around? Uh, where you thought you needed this many electricians, but in fact you need new scenic painters and dot dot dot. So it's uh, it's a lot of whether you're shifting people because people are money a lot of times, shifting hours hours are money, or shifting actual materials. It's <laughs> comes a lot comes down to money. Right, because nobody nobody denies that the need is there. It's, no, it's just acknowledging if. Are the resources there to address it and how do we shuffle it? Because just because there's a new need doesn't mean there's more money. <laughs> no. And and sometimes my job is to say, is this say to the artistic staff, right? The artistic staff in the company, I'm hearing from designer or director that this is really the most important thing to them now. A, can you jump in here and make sure that that is in fact the most important thing according to our guidelines, or our artistic directives as a theater like you are the artistic producer do you agree right because we shouldn't give them necessarily a big chunk of money if in the background we're like but the show doesn't need that it really needs this right um so i'm working very closely with our artistic uh staff to make sure that the theater's priorities are met and then also to help manage those those people are helping manage the artistic relationships right the artistic producer has a different way of talking to the director, has a different sway with the director, right? And so I'm leaning on those people every now and then to say, I need you to come over here <laughs> and tell them they have to make a decision because not everything can be the same high priority. That's a lot of what happens is we need everything. Well, you can't have everything. And we need everything right now. Well, you can't have everything right now. And, well, we need to see everything once, and then we'll let you know what we want. Can't do that because we're spending the money if we're spending the money, right? It's it's a lot of that kind of negotiation. No, it makes sense, and it's funny. It's the director, you know, everything is the most important, you know. in the Until it's the most, not. Until it's not, right. And you until it's not, and then suddenly... It's, it's heartbreaking. It's not heartbreaking because I'm used to it, right? But it's heartbreaking. And in those moments when we have worked so hard to try to figure out how to solve this problem, how to get this thing on stage, how to make it seamless, how to make it beautiful, how to make it quiet. My God, it has to be quiet, whatever the shift is, right? And we do it once in tech and they cut it. And I'm like, oh. It's just, but that's, that's what I signed up for, right? That's what we signed up for is it's organic and it gets, theater gets to change its mind constantly. And what's, and what's great is you now have like one hour to yeah. set up the solution to the, what that wasn't the solution to. Yep. And it has to be equally as invested. <laughs> yeah. So, so they cut it and then they say, what else? What's next? And we say, that took us two weeks. Uh, hang on, you know, or not, hopefully not two weeks, but it's, and sometimes those moments are really small and sometimes those, those moments are really big. And they, the, it's funny, it's almost harder to do, it's almost harder to do that kind of stuff in the smaller theater because every dollar counts more. When your budget is $50,000 versus $5,000 and all of the materials cost the same, right? Because lumber doesn't care whether you're Broadway or off-Broadway. Lumber is priced the same, right? Yeah. Um, all of our theaters are local one houses, or, or, or IATSE local one houses, but, but they're, different, uh, they're different salaries, different uh, um, pay rates, right? But it's still union labor, and the, there are still eight hours in a day, right? <laughs> so it's, it's almost trickier when you have a show. Typically, your more er, experimental work is in the, the smaller theater, 
So that experimental work or newer work, younger work, that wants to respond faster. And you have, you know, a fraction of the budget that you would have on a large, large show. So that the, the smaller shows require more creativity on the part of the technical staff. And they require us to be a little bit more protective of a budget and nimble about how we use it. It's interesting because I didn't think, I thought about it in the other, in the smaller, smaller than say stage two, right? Mm -hmm. I was thinking about off, off Broadway and thinking, right, the way that works because you have so much less money is you really have to plan further in advance and really think about what you want and what your, and what your backup plan is when that, if that doesn't work. And you almost yeah. have to have that ahead of time because going back to the $5,000, you only get one and a half options. Yeah. But when you're talking about the second, I'm thinking second stage at MTC and the newer work and more nimble, this is more for my interest. Like, how do you, how do you prepare for that? Because they're still gonna need organic experimentation. Mm-hmm. So how do you plan for the nimbleness of budget and ability, I guess is my question. I think so much of it has to do with setting the expectations early, right? To really give the uh, the director and the designers from the jump a very clear idea of this is the sandbox that you have to play in, right? You have this much money, you can't get more money, <laughs> right? And this much money in the past has worked in this way or this way, like giving people a framework, right? You have to set parameters. You can't afford automation, right? Or if you want one automated effect, you have nothing else, right? And what that really means. Uh, And some directors and designers hear that and understand it. Sometimes there are designers who have been in this industry. I mean, the thing that's interesting about um, MTC and stage two is that we're getting Broadway designers in stage two, right? Like a yeah. lot of New York, smaller New York theater, the Broadway designers are working in the off-Broadway and the off-off-Broadway just as much as they are, you know, on the great white way. And, and so you really have to say to them, look, I know that you know that this is a smaller budget, But here's really what that means, you know, and have the director equally invested and make sure that it is really a partnership with everybody to make sure that they understand that that my job is to say yes to them as often as possible, not to say no to them too much. (laughs) Right? Right. Moises Kaufman asked me one time, Celeste, why do you always say no? And I said, Moises, I tell you, yes, as often as I can. Right. And, and that's, I mean, as long as it's within the, within the realm of what the theater company itself really wants to put out there, right. Then it's my job to figure out a a way to make it work, but it always still has to work within parameters. It's funny. I agree. I actually, I, I have this pride. I'm pride myself on being as a director to work inside those parameters. And I actually like to know them, ahead of time yeah uh because you know at some point not in the dreaming part but in the practical part to have that in consideration and it's funny i'm thinking uh, who who do you have the first i guess you have the first contact creatively with the designer right um we yeah production management usually um usually sends an email. So, so the directors, you know, the show's chosen, the director's chosen, right? That's the artistic uh, staff of the theater. The director starts talking about designers that they would like to work with. Artistic, our artistic department will suggest designers that we like to work with. We're in the background saying that designer costs more, you know, this designer is more nimble. It depends on what, which production, uh, it's not, we're not like shit talking. It's just, you know, like. Just the facts. Just facts, you know. <laughs> like, this person dreams really big and that's great artistically. And that means my job is going to be harder. And fine. Like, I like to know those things going in as well, right? So we, those decisions are getting made. And as soon as the designers are chosen uh, and and we're set, the creative team is set, we start sending uh we'll send an email that says, hey, welcome. 
here's this thing, you know, here's your budget, here's the schedule, here are your deadlines, here's the staff, here are the drawings, like, you know, here are the things that, here are our expectations, uh, let's see what's next, right? Or we'll call them and we'll start those conversations and follow, in, follow up with something in writing. That's a whole separate process from their contracting, right? General management is handling the actual contracting of the designers, but we're handling all of that that actual um, discussion and a little bit negotiation. And it, it's at that point when they are starting to have those conversations with the director where, where, you know, they say, could we have projections? And we say, you're not, you don't have a budget for projections. So if you want projections, you have to take that money from somewhere else. If you want to pull out money from the scenery budget so that you can get projections, that really does limit your scenery in this way. And then we have to deal with the reality of that rarely works. And essentially we pull the money out of scenery for projections. We put projections together. Scenery still wants to be big. We have to figure out how to also still come up with the money for that. And you know, there are, I, there are certain things that I consider to be the great lies of theater, right? Things that we have told ourselves uh, as theater practitioners that are just lies, but we continue to tell ourselves these things every year and it's kind of entertaining. Would, would one of the lies be, you know, we, we can just a little projection. <laughs> yeah. Just a little, just a little video. Just a little. Just a little. R right. Well, it's hilarious because every time I, I direct a lot of solo shows and people will want video. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, then we have to fully design the space that you're going to travel into. And it's probably like a high school that you're going to go to a lot of the mm -hmm. times to do that. And we have to find somebody who knows how to design video mm -hmm. and pay them. And, and the, the gear. And the equipment, you know, simply. And the, the programming and the, yeah. Yeah, one, yeah uh, just a one-person show is one of the great lies of theater. It, all of these start with just, right? Yeah. The idea being that it's just a one-person show, so costumes are easy. It, you know, a one-person show is going to be cheaper than a 10-person show, obviously, because, right, because your costume, fewer people, and there's less salary, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But that doesn't mean that it's a hoodie from Walmart, right? It's not, it, it's there, it's just, it's always, it's always starts with just. It's just a workshop of a musical. It's just a little projection. It's just a one-person show, right? I, when I'm talking to budding production managers or budding producers, artistic producers, I say, especially to the artistic producers, remove the word just from your vocabulary. It is never just. Don't tell a production manager or a technician that it is simple. If you, as the artistic person, are saying it's simple, you don't understand rigging, trust the people who do, right? It's, you know, the, yeah. And good to have those people on your side when you start so that you can be happy with what you get. Yeah. And, and how it is created. And you, and you would never say to, to anybody as a playwright, oh, it's just a play. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just a third act. I mean, you know, it's just character development. There's, there's you know, they're just five lines. It, yeah. It's, it's, it's tricky because, um, yeah, we, we have to be careful uh, not to diminish one another's roles. And I think the, the technical side of theater is the least understood. So it gets diminished the quickest. Yeah. Everybody knows when the sound design is bad, right? But they don't know how to hear when the sound design is good, right? And yeah. so because people don't know how to tell when the sound design is good, we get rid of the Tony Sound Design Award for right like because lit because the tony's the tony team was like well people don't know how to evaluate it anyway so we might as well and it's like well then educate them right or or get people who do know how or to get do it. people who do change the way tony voting happens with that particular discipline you know or or with all of them but yes well yeah yeah <laughs> I mean, yes yes um only because I'm going to pretend to be a production manager and respectful of time. 
I'm going to ask two, the two questions on my list. What do you think, and I think you may have talked about it, what do you think you bring with you into the room? And whatever that room is, is up to you. But what do you think you carry with you today that you might not have at 29? I think how to read the room is one of the greatest skills of a production manager and something that I work on constantly. And I'm certainly better at it now than I was uh, earlier in my career. Um, knowing your audience, right? Uh, and this comes back to knowing what the director's priorities are and the designer's priorities and knowing how individual people are gonna respond, not, not assuming, right, and getting defensive or whatever, but like, don't say stupid shit <laughs> to, to people who are in a sensitive moment, right? Don't dishonor the vol validity of a concern or a fear that is a real thing, right, because it's art and we're gonna, you know, it's namby-pamby and whatever. It's like, no, this is somebody's profession, right? So reading the room, knowing when a, a situation, seeing when a situation is getting charged and knowing how to diffuse it. I like sense of humor, knowing when not to use it, <laughs> you know, just reading the room and, and knowing, how to, knowing how to manage all of the personalities. Sometimes, the best way to manage them, manage them is to make sure that they don't think they're being managed. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 No, and I think it's true and it's funny. It's, it's, and when you say it, I think, yeah, the it's, it's when the person is being told they can't have something, it's, it's a, it's an, you know, it's a job, like you said, but it's also something that people have invested an emotional uh, yeah. time and into. And, we know that we're all trying to solve the same problem, but you know, it's a it's some form of loss is happening. Yeah. Also, uh, and, and if we can figure out how to manage that and we can all work together, that's great. I'm also thinking if you can get the people to lighten the mood, that's nice. Yeah. Sometimes we do have to remember that we're not curing cancer for children, uh, which sometimes we are operating at that level of intensity. Um, but we need to find the balance, right, between acknowledging that we are not, that this is not actually life and death, but, but it's also not a hobby, right? Right. Like, and, and just because I don't understand your role technically, or I haven't actually done your job doesn't mean that that's not valid, right? That it should be discounted or diminished or, or whatever. And my final one is um, for people starting out. Do you have, I mean, we've talked a lot about good stuff, but what advice would you give? Um, and this can be for production management or career in the theater in general. Yeah, I think uh, that you should trust yourself more than you uh, think, but don't be cocky, obviously. Um, I think it's interesting, both of my points, I would actually speak more to young women. Although I think, you know, younger artists and younger technicians uh, should learn. don't doubt yourself as much, but to the women who are entering the industry, right, you absolutely have a voice in that room. So don't hold back that voice because the other voices in the room are louder or are given more uh, automatic sense of import or whatever. And if you are a woman negotiating for a job, if you've gotten a job offer, always counter offer, always ask for more money, period, right? Um, <laughs> in my experience, your male counterparts will always counter offer and they will get more money. And if you don't, because you decide that, that what you were offered was probably all they have, like that's bullshit. Don't undercut yourself. You are your only advocate. You are your only voice that's bringing you into the room. So always counteroffer, aim high, don't undersell yourself because we need as many strong female voices as we can get. On that, I'm also going to say to do the same thing that you did when you were making your life decision. If you get offered a job at the next level of career, call male slash and female yeah. designers and artists who've worked there before just and to ask the hard question what did they mm -hmm. pay you yeah 
do do research and don't be shy about reaching out to you know get a lot of uh, a, a lot of opinions if you can because different people are going to have different experiences and you know some people are going to walk out of a company and say that place is bullshit and i hated it and somebody else is going to say that was the most amazing experience of my life and you know the people you're asking and you can gauge where in that universe you might fall don't be afraid to, yeah, sort of lean on your peers and your mentors and your predecessors to get the information that you need to yeah. make the right choice. Because it's, yeah, I wanted to, yeah, I think it's great advice. And I wanted to make sure to also say, do the homework. Because I think a lot of times people don't ask um, because they don't know, mm -hmm. you know, they don't, they don't know what's right to ask for, you know. Yeah. If somebody doesn't want to tell you how much they made, they'll say, I'm not comfortable telling you that. Or you can say, uh, if you're not comfortable saying this, then that's fine. But it would be great for me. I have no, you can say to them, I have no frame of reference for this. I don't know how much I should be asking for. How much should I be asking for? <laughs> right? I, I got a job once and after it, I had counter offered. And after it, the woman who hired me said, you should have asked for more money. And I said, I did ask for more money. And she said, you should have asked for more money. And I said, do you want to give it to me now? No, I can't. But I would have. And I was like, Ugh, you know, like. I'm giving it to you right now in advice. Yeah, exactly. So my, my advice to every intern I ever have and every young woman who comes onto my uh, production team is always counteroffer. If there's a cap, they'll tell you there's a cap, right? If, if it's contractual, right, we don't pay more than this because it's favored nations and blah, 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 they'll tell you that. Always ask for more. Well, that was great. Thank you, Celeste. Thank you uh, for that conversation. It was just great. Great to talk to you. And um, uh, she's you know, so honest and uh, just, I love the, the, I like her spirit a lot. And I also like, um, <laughs> I like the advice at the end about always ask for more because it's true. You, anytime, it's, you know, anytime a negotiation is over, you, uh, you know, wherever you came to agree with each of you could have got, you know, more or less either direction, I find. And uh, and I think it's really great advice. It's also great about researching and asking people and not to be afraid to ask the uncomfortable questions. You know, obviously ask, what do you think about that place? Should I take this job? What was your experience? But also, you know, that idea of I have no experience at this level. What should I be getting paid? And I, I think that's really, it's good because I want, you know, we all want to get to the next level and we all want to make a living. I also think it's interesting to think about that, you know, at this period when we're doing in theater, there doesn't seem to be immediate employment, but we are planning for the future. And as you know, we're, we're all thinking about what's next and, you know, how are we going to get there and where are we going to go? And, uh, you know, also to take care of yourself and ask for what you want. And the other thing that I thought was great was the, in, the idea of the internship that taught you what you didn't want to do. And I think, you know, it's good. Find out what you don't want to do in this period. There are things, you know, if we try things, you know, I was really excited at the beginning of doing Zoom and doing a couple of productions over Zoom and that uh, got written up, you know, it was in American theater. The farm did two productions in, over Zoom. And um, now I don't want to do a production over Zoom. You know, I want to do a reading. I want to do play development. That's really satisfying. But I got to find another satisfying way. But I learned that that's not fully satisfying for me. And it's good to know that because now I can start to think about what would be satisfying and what do I want to do creatively and how do I want to share that work and, you know, and what's the best form to share what I have to say. So it was really great to just hear Celeste say that and talk about, you know, all of her experience, but the idea of, you know, finding out what are the things you love to do doing your due diligence and ask for more. I think that is important. And uh, I hope, uh, I, again, I hope everybody's well. I hope you're doing great. I hope you're taking care of yourself. And, um, and I, I'm really grateful you're listening. I know it's in this time, it's, uh, there's a lot going on, you know, where a lot of people are educating themselves on 
social issues that are happening and a lot of people aren't maybe thinking about, oh, I should listen to that theater podcast about how to take the next step in my career or how somebody built their career because, you know, there's not immediate work. So if you're listening to this right now, I love it. I appreciate it. I'm grateful. And if you're enjoying it and you got something out of it, tell people, uh, go on iTunes, rate us, uh, the five-star rating apparently helps people find us. I've learned that it does. It's been demonstrated. So I'm really grateful for all that support. And um, I'm also going to say just if you are doing anything creatively interesting and, and you want to share it and the farm's happy to promote and support it. So just, you know, Facebook us, email us, uh, bullpen at thefarmtheater.org and let us know what's happening because I'd uh, love to know what you are doing in this time of uh, self-isolation and social distance. And with that, I uh, hope everybody has a wonderful summer. Uh, we have a couple more episodes before season two is done, but uh, it's the beginning of the uh, time. And with that, I hope you're listening outside. Yeah. With that, we're out. We're out.